We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. As always, stay tuned to the end of the interview, where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights will also be in the show notes, and all of my episodes and all of my show notes are at theentrepreneurethos.com. So go check that out. As always, thanks for listening. Now on to my guest for today, Devin Miller, an attorney who practices intellectual property law and who is also an entrepreneur. Some people learn by doing, others learn in school. Devin has done both, having earned four degrees starting out in engineering, where he quickly realized he didn't want to be a cog in the wheel. Well, that's good to realize quicker, I guess. He went on to earn an MBA and a JD, graduating with both degrees in the same year. As a business student, he regularly competed in business competitions, and he's founded several companies. He was also an intellectual property attorney, working for such big companies Apple, Amazon, and Intel. It's no surprise that Devin decided to strike out on his own and start his own law firm, Miller IP, where he focuses on helping startups and entrepreneurs with intellectual property issues. Navigating the terrain of patents can be tricky for an entrepreneur. When do you file? When do you have to do all the things you have to do, right? Devin offers some insights into the process, including why you don't have to wait too long. And when you want to think about applying in other countries and all sorts of other things. Since his primary focus is on helping startups, he's also developed a less expensive alternative for businesses and entrepreneurs who need a, who need a little more affordable option but don't want to risk just doing it themselves. He calls that Snap Legal, and it offers a bridge between the do-it-yourself legal solution and hiring an attorney. Always looking to be of service, Devin also offers a free strategy session to help companies determine if hiring an IP lawyer is the right thing for them. That's actually really cool. So now let's get better together. Devin Miller, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. 
Well, thank you for being on. You are one of, I think you're the third lawyer I've had on the show, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but I'm you're... sure I'll be the best. So. <laughs> well, there's a pretty high bar because it was my friend Dan that we back at Ion Torrent, uh, which was a DNA sequencing company. That's where I met him. And he was the IP lawyer for doing all of our um, patents for DNA semiconductor DNA sequencing, which is like whole other level of crazy. Uh, All right. Well, the bar has been set, but I still think I have. I, okay. I think so. I don't think Dan would be offended by that. I mean, are lawyers really offended by much? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, it's a profession that people love to pick on. Everybody has a lawyer joke, so we're probably all pretty used to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, you know, I've found that lawyers have the best lawyer jokes because <laughs> they don't take themselves that serious. And I always say, yeah, I pick on lawyers except mine. <laughs> exactly. My lawyer, they're the best person in the world, which I hope no one ever needs a lawyer for the bad stuff, but only for the good stuff, like what you do. Exactly. IP law, NDA, you know, the good, the good stuff, the creative stuff. So uh, we're definitely going to talk about that and going to talk about um, some of the offerings you have under this sort of snap legal kind of DIY thing, which I find really fascinating, especially as service companies try to figure out how to scale. Hmm. Uh, but before we talk about that, as I always like to say, you know, same question every time, <laughs> tell me how you got to do what you're doing today. Yeah. And it's always a short question to get the long answer. So I will try and keep it at a reasonable scale, but you know, I, if I were to go all the way back to college, this is a really quick thing. I got to the end of, I did an undergraduate, I did a, a double major or dual degree in uh, Chinese and electrical engineering. So focus is really going to be on engineering. And I kind of got to the end of my engineering degree and said, well, you know, I like being an engineer. I like doing engineering, but I don't want to be an engineer in the sense that I didn't want to be working with one company for a long period of time to try and work my way to the top or be a small cog in a big wheel, be on a project for months or years at a time. That just didn't sound appealing. So I'm saying, well, what can I do? So I kind of looked at and said, I'd like to, you know, how can I incorporate it? I like business. I like startups. I like entrepreneurship. I also like engineering. And I kind of thought the, the law was always an interesting aspect. So kind of with all that, I put it in a, you know, in a big pot and said, I'm going to go and get an engineer, an MBA degree so I can do the startup and entrepreneur side. I'm also going to go get a law degree so I can learn how to protect it and, and uh and how to do that. So I went and got those, uh, went down both of those paths, went and got the MBA, went and got the law degree, um, ended up with four degrees, which my wife always said was three degrees too many. Then, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Towards the end, you know, I got to where I was doing the law, their law degree and then chasing the legal career. And I also loved entrepreneurship. And so I kind of had a split path. So I, it, as I was wrapping up, it was the junior year, four year program to do both degrees at the same time. Third year in, I entered a business competition. It's one of those where everybody shows up and nobody knows each other, and they're trying to do you know different degrees and different disciplines and multidisciplinary. So I met a few other people. I entered the business competition with them. We took second place the first year. Um, wasn't an idea I thought was really going to go anywhere, so we kind of parted our own ways. Next year, came back last year, and we um, we had we were coming up with different ideas, and we had some really stupid ideas. But one of the ideas that I'd come up with was I wanted to do, um, I, I got into marathon racing at the time. So I thought, wouldn't it be cool if you did a, a wearable, this was the days before the Apple Watch or Fitbits or anything, that you could monitor hydration. So came up with that, started down that route, 
to put, entered in a business competition, took second place again, which is still a little bittersweet. <laughs> that's a longer story. Um, and so finished the business competition. I said, Hey, I think this is a great idea. I bought all my business or the people in the competition. I bought their rights out. So I had owned it outright. Started down that path of doing entrepreneurship. At the same time, I'm also working, you know, doing the dual degrees. I have two kids or two toddlers at the time, and I'm working the 20 hours as a law clerk to get or to get their experience as a law degree. So with all that, I graduate, go off. My full-time endeavor is being an attorney. So I worked for huge law firms, some of the top 100s in the nation, worked for Amazons and Intels and Fords and others. And at the same time, I'm also chasing the entrepreneur that, that they're the same business in the background. And, you know, they're continuing to push that forward. So I really am basically doing two full-time jobs. And then I got to a point where I said, one is I don't want to have to split all my attention, be having to do it nights and weekends. And the other hand, I don't want to I don't want to have to have, you know, kind of a few separate businesses. I want to look to fold them in. And then I also took a step back and said, which kind of clients on the law side do I like to love to work with? And, you know, I worked with the big names, Amazons and Intels. And why it was, you know, everybody knows those names. It's one where they don't, you, you're a very small cog in a big wheel again to where you work on a very small, particular little piece of the technology and the patent, but you never get to work on the thing. You don't get to give them any counseling. You don't get to really give, give them any insight or anything else. I love working with startups and small businesses. So with all of that in mind, decided I was going to go out, start my own law firm and also um, pursue some of the, the business or businesses or in, a, in a more specific endeavor. And that's where it takes me was about three years ago, started my own law firm where um, we did, or we focused on startups and small businesses. And then in, in, it folded into my endeavors was continuing to push along some of the, what I would say, side hustles or second jobs, folding folded that all in together. And that's what I'm doing now. Wow. Wow. Four degrees, three degrees, too many. I, I I really like your wife there. That's a really good one. <laughs> That's right. She's a keeper. She's definitely a keeper. Yeah. Well, it's so fascinating because, you know, a lot of the people that I know that get into IP law originally started off in engineering, physics, mathematics, and realized the same thing you realized. It's like, ah, oh, this engineering thing is kind of cool, but I really don't want to be like working on the wing attachment to the Boeing 777 for the entirety of my career that I am the expert in the flange that hooks, you know, you're like, yeah, no, I don't think so. Exactly. Unless they went to a startup. But um, I find it really fascinating because, you know, I, we mentioned, I mentioned before we started recording that I've, I have 10 patents and a lot of those patents were from big companies where they encouraged us to file disclosures and do all this sort of stuff. And I always thought it was super fascinating, the process of like, oh, this lawyer is going to take the thing in my head and like write it into a specification to apply for a patent. And it's going to take years for this thing to go through the process. But I think, I don't think a lot of people understand the real art as well as the how how good we actually have it in the US where this patent system and trademark and everything and people bash on the government and everything, but it's pretty good. And I was wondering, is that your thought on it or how how did it how's it been treating you, I guess? No, I, I, I agree with you. And you know, I, I think that people either been through the process before and they get the value of it, or you know, there's kind of a few different people. Been through the process, get the value of it, things a good system. Other people have just getting to a startup or small businesses, or they go to a, uh, an attorney, they hear the cost of it, they add the time frame, and they say, yeah, it's probably 
worth it. I understand. I understand that. And then there's, you know, some people that are just saying, hey, I'm just going to go and compete. I'm not never going to get into intellectual property. It's not worth it at all. And, you know, there's a good mix. Now, your question of, I, I think it's a great system. You know, you go to other countries and some countries don't enforce it very well or they don't do a good job examining or they're too strict or they're not strict enough. And they, in the U.S., they, it's not a perfect system. I don't know any of our, but it gives a pretty good balance. The other only gripe I'd give to the system is, so USPTO or the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office is the only profit generating branch of the government, meaning they're the only ones that actually make, make money. The yep. post office loses money. Congress and everybody else obviously loses money, but the Patent and Trademark Office actually makes money. The only problem is the government uses it as a piggy bank to go fund all their special projects. So they never get to reinvest and update a lot of their systems. So right. I had one gripe would just be that they don't, they a lot of their user interfaces and that never get updated, but that's because they don't have the funds to reinvest to update it because they never get the money. So that'd be my only, but otherwise I think it's a great system. I think it, it, it works very well. Yeah, I mean, good point. Like it does make money because there's filing fees depending on your entity. And it's actually pretty fair. I was surprised that depending on how big an entity you are, was the filing was the sliding scale. And then you could you could file a provisional relatively, you know, cheaply, but then you had a year to kind of like it, it again, yeah, you're right. For all its for all the world's faults, like we're pretty good at this innovation thing. And I think that's a strategic advantage that not a lot of other countries can have. And I'm, I'm curious when a, when a startup comes to you and they, you know, see the, the sticker tag, sticker price shock or whatever, <laughs> like, ah, I don't believe I got to pay this much for a patent. Um, how much? Yeah. For, for what? No guarantees. Yeah. And it's going to take how long, how many years? Like really, you know, um, what what sort of I and I know you actually offer like a strategic advisory kind of um, meetings to kind of go over this. I'm just curious if you could take me through the process of okay, like a startup comes to you and that like mostly like they probably don't have an, any idea what the heck's going on. What sort of the, the conversation? How does that work? Because what I've found with some of the startups that I've been at is it depends a lot on the CEO on how patent focused they are. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, is that if you're going to get venture capital, one of the checkbox items <laughs> is intellectual property portfolio. <laughs> and I've seen the checklist because I've been asked this so many. So what kind of patents do you have? And you're just like, oh, that's a good question. I'll get back to you. Yeah, so exactly. So what do you tell people? So, I mean, walking through the process just a bit. I mean, you mentioned and self or self-promoting plug. So we do strategy meetings, but really it's it's not self-promotion because what I found is, you know, if you have a CEO or someone that's experienced has been through the process, they'll either get it and they'll say, yeah, it's, it's worthwhile to invest or, hey, we, we're not going to invest there, but they've already made up their mind. But for a lot of people, they're going to watch whether it's Shark Tank, they're going to hear, hey, Somebody has a patent. Maybe I should look into that for my business or they'll listen to it on a podcast or somebody will mention it to them. Or if they are going to pitch to an investors and then the investor asks them and they don't know, then they run out and start or talking to a patent attorney to try and get an idea of what is this patent system and what the, or trademark or whatever they're looking for. But so the reason that we started doing strategy meetings was the biggest hurdle for a lot of startups and small businesses. They're worried that they're going to go into a attorney's office and they're going to hear the cash register ka-ching, ka-ching as soon as they walk in. 
and they don't even know if they need it or when they need it or what's it going to cost them or anything else. And so it kind of already puts that barrier to where a lot of attorneys, you have to walk in, you have to pay to even talk with them. And then you're going to say, I'm going to spend a few hundred dollars or something. I don't even know if I need. So kind of to remove that barrier, we said, why don't we just simply do a strategy meeting? You can come in, we'll chat, hear a little bit of what you have going on, give you a little bit of direction and going, you know, figuring that out. And then once they, you know, once we strategize, and sometimes it doesn't make sense as a business. You know, if you're a startup and you're going to do a product that's going to be out there for a year or two, think about the Snuggie. You know, Snuggie was awesome. It was all over. You saw it advertised in about two years. It saturated the marketplace. Nobody was buying Snuggies and it was it disappeared. Right. It wouldn't have made sense probably for them to get a patent because they were only going to be out there a couple of years. It would have taken at least that long to get through the, the patent process. And even if not, they've already saturated the market. There isn't any reason to go out and enforce it. So sometimes you get the answer of it doesn't make sense to go after a patent. If you're a restaurant and you're going to be a, a local mom and pop, you know, restaurant, sort of a local community, again, yeah, doesn't make sense to get a trademark, doesn't make sense to do it. But if on the other hand, you're looking and saying, I'm either going to build a business that's going to be longer, you know, more sustainable, I'm going to go out and get investor dollars or angel investors, I'm going to look for a merger or an acquisition to be acquired in five or 10 years. If you're starting to look into that longer term, then the reason that you're going to go and look at getting a patent and you're going to start the process is because then it gives you a way to Yes, you protect what you're doing a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. In other words, you're going to spend a ton of time on research and development. You're going to spend a ton of time figuring things out. And how do you capture that as value? Because it's always easier once you know the magic trick. It's easier to reverse engineer it once you know what how the technology works. It's always easier to build the second one. So it really gives you the ability to capture. So when you come into the office, when I sit down with the startup, we're going to kind of talk through all of that. Figure out what is it that you want to protect. Does it make sense to protect it? What are you doing? Who is it? Who's your target audience? Who, what, you know, why would this be a good investment or is it not a good investment for your company? And then once you do that, you know, if you can have that conversation, help them understand what they're investing in, why they're investing in it. Does it make sense? Does it not make sense? Then it helps to remove that sticker shock. You're saying, okay, yes, this is an investment. But on the other hand, when you go to get, you know, the venture capital and they're talking, you're trying to get a, a multi-million dollar investment or hundreds of thousands of dollars and you, and they say, well, that all sounds great, but what stops me from going and knocking off what you're gonna, what you're doing today? I'm well funded. I can have other connections and say, well, no, we have some, we have protected what was proprietary to us, and we have that in place. It's a much easier conversation. So that's kind of if they understand what they're doing, why they're doing it, then it makes it that conversation of now this is what you're investing in, and this is why it's an asset to the company and why it's beneficial. Just like you invest in employees, or you invest in an office space, or resources, or anything else. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because what what I've found is that there's a point in a startup's life cycle, I think would be the word, where this sort of patent stuff, like if it's too early, they don't have they don't have the money. Right. That's mm -hmm. part of the reason the whole kind of provisional patent concept, which I'd, I'd love you to touch on in a second, is it makes a lot of sense. But then there's always the, OK, what are we going to spend our money on and why? And is this really protectable? Right. Which, like you said, well, it's up to the PTO, really. I mean, you could do the best you can, but we can't guarantee, you know, yep. that, that you're going to get issued a patent. Um, what is the is there a right time stage of a company? Is there certain things that types of companies like you mentioned, the mom and pop shop? I mean, clearly you don't need like a registered trademark if you're just in your local area or whatever. But 
Are there some general rules of thumb that people can kind of like, before they come talk to you, kind of be like, yeah, okay, this is worth a conversation? Yeah, there's, I kind of cap it as there's, there's a couple things to consider. One on the one end of when, when is too early to get started and when should you or make sure to get, or to get started before, you know, that, that time period. So on the, on the, on the patent side, it, it's similar on the trademark side, but we'll stick on patents for just a minute. What you'll need to do is you need to have whatever you're inventing, whatever you're going to be making, you have to be able to engage a patent attorney. You need to be able to do what's called conceptual reduction of practice. And that what that basically means is you need to be able to explain it to somebody in your industry to a level they can say, okay, I get it. I can make that if I if I had the time and money and resources, but you can explain it. This is how it's going to work. This is what it's going to do. If you can't if if you can't get to that level yet, you're too too early. Now it doesn't mean you shouldn't pursue it, but it just simply means, hey, if you say we have this great idea and you say, well, how's it going to work? We're still figuring that out. We don't quite know yet, but we'll get there. Then get there and then go talk to a patent attorney because until you get there, they're going to say it's not worthwhile to invest. Or if they tell you it's worthwhile to invest, then go find another patent attorney. But Totally. The other, and then on the other extreme that you hit into is there's also a one-year time clock that gets ticking anytime you put something out in the public. So if you were to go and do a a, a seminar, you were to do a, put up a website, you were to start to try and go and sell this. You do a Kickstarter campaign, you go and pitch investors, you do you know trade shows, any of those, you put it out to the public. You first time you put it out to the public, you get a one a one-year time clock ticking. If you don't file within that one year. You just donated your ideas to the public, meaning anybody can do it. So that one's kind of the waiting too long. If you if you've done it, because I have people coming to ours all the time and they'll say, Hey, we've been doing we've been in business for a few years and we didn't have money when we got started. And but now we finally got around to getting a patent and we'd like to or sit down and talk with you. And then you get the uncomfortable conversation of that's awesome that you great built a great business. I'm excited for you. However, we're not going to be able to help you because you missed that one year time clock. Now, there are some ways that you can navigate that and way you can still adjust to. But if you wait too long, it does or hamper quite a bit of what you're doing. So that's kind of the two caps. Trademarks are kind of the same idea. Trademarks don't have a one year time clock, but it's, it, there is a presumption patents and trademarks. First person to file is a presumptive owner of the rights. First person to file a patent, you're going to be the presumptive inventor. First person to file in a trademark, you're going to be the presumptive owner of that brand. And so you always have to kind of keep in mind what your risk tolerance is. How long are you willing to wait to file a patent or a trademark? Because if it's a competitive marketplace, a lot of people doing things, a lot of people trying to come up with things, whether it's on the branding or on the patent side, then you're going to have to say, how how long am I willing to wait and gamble that somebody else is going to patent this first or trademark it first and box me out of my own so those are a few things to consider when you're saying how early do I start? How long can I wait? Yeah, because it, it used to be first to invent, not first yeah. to file. And I know and that about happened. 2013, what about eight years to go? About now, they yeah. they came out and said we're we're going to conform to what the uh, basically the rest of the world is doing, and we're going to move to the same system. So yeah, same used to be first, uh, first to invent, that's gone. You're not, you're now first to file. Yeah, yeah. That because I remember I was doing some stuff back then and our patent attorney was like well you know it's coming up we're better because of course he's like he, you know he get paid he got paid for how many patents right and right. he's like well you know if you got something we should get this in quick because you know this is going to change and i always found that like super interesting that uh even though it's been around what the uspto has been around for how long 
It's really it's got to be late 17. I mean, you had Benjamin Franklin that was right there filing patents back in that day. So I, I, I guess that's a good question. I don't know the exact date, but it's got to be it's right around the founding of the country because shortly thereafter you had Franklin that was filing some of the first patents. Yeah. And it's so interesting that they realized back then, because I don't know what kind of patent and trademark law was even in Europe back then. I mean, I'm, I guess there had to be something, but to to have the forethought to be like, okay, we're going to form this country and declare our independence from, you know, we just had that, you know, July 4th, right? right. We're going to declare our independence from England, you know, go to hell, you guys, or whatever. And then, and then the foundation of our country is going to be, well, we're rugged individualists and we need to protect IP. <laughs> pretty, right. pretty cool, actually. I give them credit. You had a lot of smart people that were trying to say, how are we going to build this country? How are we going to make it prof- you know, profitable? How are we going to make it stick around and how are we going to motivate people? And I think one of the questions that comes up is if we're going to out innovate, outthink, out outperform other people, We've got to give an incentive that people want to invest. In other words, if you don't, if if you come up, if you spend millions of dollars on R and D, all of a sudden somebody says that's a great idea. I'm going to go copy that too, and there's nothing you can do about it. And people are going to say, "Well, I'm not going to invest millions of dollars in something that's easy." So I think that they they were very smart and have a lot of foresight into how to correctly align incentives or to make or to have people invest in in building things. I mean, it really is pretty amazing. To think about it, because like, because what reason I bring this up is that I always look at other countries, and everyone's like, okay, how do you reproduce the entrepreneur spirit that America has? I mean, a lot of people say, how do you reproduce Silicon Valley in you know wherever Tennessee, Idaho, Atlanta, whatever? Um, mm. And and what's interesting is that you look at other countries, and and in some metrics, the U.S. is actually not anymore not as innovative and entrepreneurial as other ones. And there's some studies about openness of government, transparency, and blah, blah, blah. But the one thing that, you know, our intellectual property um, system and where a lot of that stuff is um, adjudicated, and there's a certain spot, is it in Texas that's like the main like place where they, it's called the rocket docket, right? Yeah, that's that's the place. And it's changes not quite as much, but still very much, but not as much as it used to. Where basically, if you wanted to go and sue for patent, you would go to Texas because that was where everybody, all the lawyers were there, all the courts were there. They were very patent friendly. You own the patent, that's where you went. It's changed a little bit. It's not quite as severe. But go to te- Texas is a big hub for um, patent litigation. Yeah, similar to Delaware being for corporate law, like exactly. And they they made that decision like back in the 1800s. They said we're going to be the corporate state. <laughs> yeah, we're going to make it so companies want to come here to register. We're going to be very friendly to corporations. We're going to have well-defined laws, and we're going to be the place. And that's why I would think Delaware is the park place for where you register your business because that's where everybody. Does. Yeah, yeah. If you want venture capital, it has to be a Delaware C corp, or no one's even going to talk to you. It's amazing. And it's amazing how, like, again, like, I think this is the genius of kind of what we've created here. And 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 with all the faults of all the law and lawsuits and everything, but 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 the general like framework of how this all works is your startup, like you said, I have money to invest, someone invested it. I want to know my investments protected. 
the way I protect my investment is I, if it's something that's patentable, I patent it. I have a registered trademark or trademark. I, there are these protections in place so that we can have a competitive landscape so that we can all play the game. Like I always think of it as these are the rules of the game so that we can all play a fair game. Like I, you know, for all the depend, doesn't matter. Like, well, depending on what side of the spectrum of politically you're on, you may agree or disagree, but the general framework seems to work because these are the rules, right? And, and the rules are important. And I think not to be, um, you know, you can't, you, you want to have creativity and you want to have like freedom, but to be able to file your idea, have it protected. Is it now, is it still 20 years that you get the patent for yep. to get protection, uh, basically a monopoly on the idea for 20 years to get back your investment. But then the, then it goes into the public domain which is again, like that's like with generic drugs. I don't know if a lot of people know this. Like you file, can file patents. I think you can file patents on drugs, right? Yeah, all the time. And that's why you'll see drugs will come out of the marketplace. They will have exclusivity. You take whether it's Aspen, Viagra, whatever, you know, whichever, whichever drug. And you'll see for a while, they're the only drugs. And 20 years later, everybody, they, all of a sudden you see a whole bunch of flood of generic drugs because now it's open to public. And I think it's a great, a great trade-off. They're saying, we will give you a limited monopoly for a period of time, such that you can recoup your costs. We incentivize you, but we also want to encourage other people to continue to build on what you're doing. And so after that period of time expires, it's open to the public that they can continue to build on what you originally created. Yeah. Is that the way it works in other companies? Sorry, companies. <laughs> other countries too? Or do you know anything about Every country is a bit different. I mean, Europe is going to be similar. China is the Wild West. And who knows what's going on in China? <laughs> They're, I'll give them it. They are working on it and trying to get better, but they still have a while to go. Right. Japan about the same. Africa is kind of like China. It's, again, the Wild West. And then there is South America is kind of the Wild West. So kind of some countries, most of them have a time limit now. How well that's defined, how well it's enforced. And if you're in a more developed country, Europe, Japan... Some of those others, pretty good. Other countries, you figure you don't have much time because even if you get a patent, it's not going to be worth much. Yeah. So, yeah, like the China. Talk a little bit about more about China because a lot of startups, a lot of entrepreneurs, if they have a hardware product, they'll be like, oh, I'm going to build it in China because it's cheaper, clearly. I mean, that may not be the case moving forward given lots of stuff going on. But how has you know, if you can comment, how has the intellectual property landscape changed in China? Because there's a, I mean, people are worried. I, I was worried to be honest that, oh, they're just going to rip us off. How, how does that like work? I would take one step back because one of the misconceptions and it, 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 I get where it comes from is that if I'm manufacturing or making something in China, I need a patent in China. Well, the, the way the system works is if you have a U.S. patent and they're importing from other countries, they're manufacturing, bringing into the U.S., you can stop anything from being sold in the U.S. You can enforce your patent. So oh, the one okay. thing you always step back on is saying, okay, is my if if my market is in the U.S., all I need is a U.S. patent. Even if somebody is making it somewhere else, if they come into the U.S. and start selling it, my patent can be enforced against them. So now the question, so that's kind of one thing where people oftentimes get worried now. doesn't mean that China's still not going to rip it off. They, you're not going to still have to uh, stop knockoffs. But even if you had a patent in China, it doesn't do you any good in the U.S. to stop them. 
So right. then you then you so when you ever you're looking at kind of where you want to get protection, including China, you're going to say, where is my market? Where am I going to sell these things? And if you know, give me an example. I work with some companies, 95 percent of their market or their markets in the U.S. And so, you know, their medical device market or medical device products. The vast majority of the R&D and medical device spending is in the U.S. We spend more on per capita than anywhere else in the world on medical services. And so they're saying our markets in the U.S., maybe in Europe. U.S. is our biggest market. So other places like China don't make sense. But if you're Apple and you're saying, hey, we're going to go sell a whole bunch of iPhones, we're going to sell a bunch of Apple watches and everything else, including in China, then it makes sense to do it in China. So that would be the biggest thing that oftentimes people think, why well, need to go get a, a patent in China if I'm going to go manufacture there? No, get a patent in the U.S. if that's where your market is. China is one where it's it's continuing to evolve. I mean, I think... If you were to go back 15, 20 years ago, they didn't put hardly any focus on intellectual property. And it was kind of the more of the cultural mindset. It was more of, they looked at it as you can't own ideas. You really can't own something that's in your head. And so it should be, if, if, I, can, if I can figure it out how you did it, it's open for me to own. And so it's kind of more the culture. They didn't say you can't own ideas. You can own something tangible. You can't own something that's you know esoteric or kind of out there. Hmm. And so that's kind of where I think China is now having to generationally move that needle forward to say, no, if we're going to compete on the world stage, if we want people to sell in China, to manufacture in China, if we want to be a bigger presence, we have to improve this system because that's one of the biggest holdups that people have is you're worried that we're going to be a place where it's going to knock off. You're not going to have any protection. So they're still the wild west, but they have, I think, incrementally generationally made that understanding and they're moving to be more like the rest of the world in the sense of having those protections. So, so it's a, it's a cultural thing then. That's, you know, my opinion, take it for well, what I mean, you, that's, mean, that's what I think. I think it, it was cultural going back you take under some of the different, you know, different stru- governmental structures, different mindsets, different things, whether or not people can own things, whether it's capitalist, whether it's you know, socialist, communist and everything else. They all come with different mindsets and some things is, hey, we're capitalists. I own what I own and you can't take what I own. Others are, hey, we all share. We all pull together. We all raise each other up. And depending on the mindset, I think it, it has an impact on how they set up the system. Well, I mean, it clearly, the yeah, the founding philosophy and the culture has a lot to do. I mean, part of the reason, you know, we're here in the U.S. is that we're innocent till proven guilty, but in France, it's the opposite. It's like guilty until proven innocent or something. It, it's some esoteric thing, but it's different. It's switched. Which- yeah, there's different countries have, some of them have the presumption where you're basically proving your innocence as opposed to proving you're guilty. If you're innocent, then you shouldn't have a problem saying why you're innocent. Whereas in the U.S., if you're not, if you until you can prove that I did it, I'm I'm presumed innocent. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's different, interesting. So different philosophy, different founding principles, but yet in the world economy, which is more and more connected, as we saw through COVID and you know the Suez Canal getting blocked for two weeks, and the world sort of stops. You know, mm-hmm. it's interesting. So so you think. So, so I mean, even the U.S. moving towards the more of the European worldwide system of making it, you know, more uniform. I think, I don't remember what they called it, but it just seems like everything's being streamlined to make this world trade a lot more, I don't know, comfortable, possible. Is that how you see it? I mean, yeah, uniform is probably, I mean, I think they're trying to make it so that, 
as you can see with COVID, you know, it was even pre-COVID. I mean, you take the crash in 2008 and, you know, when you thought, hey, Greece is going down, the rest of the European, European Union is going down and they had to deal with that. But the, the world has shrunk in the sense that everything's interconnected. And so I think that people are looking and saying we have to make it so that, you know, before we can't be an isolationist where we just do what's, you know, do things in the U.S. and don't worry about everything else. They're saying we need to make it so that companies and that are manufacturing in Europe, they're selling in the U.S. or they're shipping to fulfillments in, you know, South America, and then they're selling in the U.S. And then, you know, it gets going. This All these things that start to interconnect and where it's not just, you know, all in one place, you're going to have to make a uniform system to make it all work. And I think that's where we're shifting or at least having some struggle, but we're all, everybody's trying to figure out how we continue to deal with everything being much more integrated. Yeah, because I mean, even global logistics, I mean, it's, it's insane. You know, logistics sounds like this unsexy thing, which it kind of is. But then you realize how yeah, I remember. Yeah, 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 exactly. Right. Well, it was funny because I, when my startup got invited to uh, Copenhagen, Denmark. Hmm. And there's a company, very famous company called Maersk. Maersk is, the, you know, I mean, I think they're the, my guess is the fourth largest shipping fleet. It's some crazy number. Hmm. Um, and this was around the time where they got hacked, their IT system got hacked and shut down their ability to use their IT system. And they ship, I think it's 20% of the world's cargo. It's crazy. Right? And so they were saying that how we are managing our company right now is through spreadsheet, spreadsheets and WhatsApp. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm all really, he's like, it's, we got locked out. Right. So it's just so fascinating how that stuff is very, um, interconnected. interconnected. Yeah. Interconnected. And, and, and I think, I think as entrepreneurs now, again, like, I think, I, I mean, it was a good point you made about, well, look, if you're only going to sell in the U S you basically want to get the protection where you're selling. So U S U S patent. If you're worldwide, then there's also a lot of times people say about checkerboarding and it's, it's can get expensive quickly, <laughs> especially if you file one in Japan, like you're like, Oh, we got to get it translated to Japanese. Ah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's a nightmare. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated because, you know, as I, I feel strongly that entrepreneurship's only going to continue on. There's going to be more and more people are going to want to start companies. They just saw this whole COVID thing going, well, I really got to take my life in my own hands. I mean, the absolute rugged individualistic, you know, American spirit is, I think is going to turn on pretty hard. Um, and so my guess is you're going to be pretty busy. Uh, but fingers crossed. yeah, fingers crossed. But what's interesting is that, so you're a service business, like traditional law firm service business. Um, and like, and that's, I'm, I do a service business to the PR and marketing and communications, but you are now starting to offer these sort of DIY services. And I find this really fascinating because I think when, as things start to grow scale at a normal law firm would be add more lawyers. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. Well, maybe that's not an option for me or. I'm so let me back up. So 
these DIY services, what drove you to actually bundle build? I mean, you build, I think they're like automatic, right? Some of these things are, why don't you, why don't you explain what the snap legal line is? Cause I'm doing a bad job of it. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> to back up the original Genesis, we, you know, full transparency, we have a few products, I, they work great. We're still trying to figure out the exact way to position up in the marketplace and, and, and make it work because two kind of two motivations. One is that, you know, LegalZoom is out there and there are other ones out there and they're doing it one way. And, you know, you can go to LegalZoom now. If you get into patents and trademarks, even if you don't come to us, don't use LegalZoom, it's not that great. But, you know, but the people use it and, and it's out there. And so they're offering, you know, those kind of services where you just come in and you do it. And there isn't, there isn't a lot. And I've gone through LegalZoom and, and tried looked at it before. And it's very cut and dry. There isn't a lot of training. There isn't a lot of, you don't know what you're doing. Half the time you wonder if you're getting it done right and everything else. And then on, but on the flip side, you're saying, I also, they can't, they're, they're a portion of startups and small businesses that have, don't, just can't afford attorneys. You know, they're, they're saying, hey, we're very early on, we're bootstrapped and, and, you know, we can't afford to go into, we'd love to go into attorney, but we can't right now. And so then it kind of leaves people in this limbo to either where you go to a service that, you really don't know what you're doing. You don't. You, you you hope you did it right, and you just cross your fingers, and hopefully nobody. You know, when you go into the investor, nobody notices that it was filed by LegalZoom, and hopefully it goes okay. And yet, and so it felt like that the market is pushing the legal industry into the LegalZoom area. In other words, they want to people want to be able to reduce costs. They want to have be more involved and understand what they're doing and everything else. And the legal service or the law firm industry doesn't want to go that direction because they're saying, well, our bread and butter is to do the high paid lawyer and everything yes. else. And so, you know, they don't want to push that. So it's kind of that tension. And I think that automation, legal zoom and those kind of DIY services are going to win out in the long run. They'll just take a while. And so then to me, it felt like there was a gap that could be filled between both of those. In other words, I don't know that legal zoom is the answer. And I don't know that the traditional law firm model is going to be out there forever. And so what we tried to say is, can we build a system with DIY products that allows people to get, first of all, better training? So one of the things that we did with it is say, what is one of the biggest things? People don't know what they're doing. So we went and every step of the way we record videos. They sit there and not just read a whole bunch of text you don't understand, but have videos that explain to you what you're doing, why you're doing it, how you're doing it. And then some of them, we say, this is straightforward enough. We will automatically generate a document that goes out to you. Other ones, excuse me, we said, you know, we can't, if we, it's really too difficult to just simply remove the attorney out of the equation. You don't get a good enough product to make it worthwhile. And so we said on the DIY, we'll say, hey, we can offer a few options. If you really just want to go on your own, we don't recommend it, but you can, here's the, here's a guide, here's a course. We'll give our, we'll give you the best training we can and you can file it yourself. And then we said, why don't we take it a couple steps further to where we can also say, hey, if you need help filing it, we will file it for you. Or if you want an attorney review, or if you want us to, you get halfway through and say, yeah, this is really complicated. I'd rather have an attorney do it. We can pick up to where you left off. So it was kind of really with the idea of let's give people more options. So we don't just have do it yourself and have no idea what you're doing or go to an attorney that I can't afford. But let's kind of start to do that. And so that's where really where Snap Legal and the DIY services came. And then the other interesting thing is, is, is one where it gives us an opportunity to make connections with people. So maybe you're in a startup and you're starting out yeah. and you can afford our services today. But if things go well and you continue to build a business, you get to a point where you, you don't have enough time to get everything done. And you do want to have that attorney step in that has the expertise so they can walk you through it. 
And so it gives us the ability to establish those relationships early. So it's one where it's been a, a fun and ongoing process. We're trying to figure out how you can bridge that gap to give everybody the best service, give them options, and also allow them to not, or if they can't afford an attorney, to have alternative options that are, are better or better or path forward. And I mean, how how's the response been so far? It's been good. It's it's one where you know it's it's one where. It gives us an opportunity. Half the time we, we explain it to them and we we talk to startups and they say, yeah, I appreciate that option. I think I'd just rather go with you because you seem like you know what you're doing. But if nothing, if part of that time, it makes us show that we're not just in it to just try and get as much money out of a startup, but right. we do have their best, you know, their best interests at heart and we're trying to offer more options. And then some people, it does. It is kind of what I explained. They say, hey, we're going to get going. We can't do it. to You know, we can't afford your race today. It's like, great. Well, we have this other service here that we'd recommend. You know, I always kind of look at it as, you know, if our split kind of where Snap Legal goes in, there's a few different options when you're doing stuff. You can do do it all yourself, completely by yourself, no training, just try and go read on the Internet. And if I were to do that, it's kind of like I, I would say building a house. Right. If I would, if you go and get a tent, you can you're set up your tent. You can technically live in it. You can do that. That would be just go do it yourself because that's better than, you know, at least you have something over your head. Now, if you wanted to go do DIY, you know, and have that guidance and do a snap legal, it's kind of like you're to go and, for lack of a better word, go to YouTube. Now you got it. How do I build a house? Well, it's not going to be an immaculate, amazing house, but it's going to be better than the tent. So let's get that incrementally, make improve and make it better. And then now do you want the nice house that has the builder with the experience and how to do it all? That's when you go to an attorney. But it gives you those options so you're not either stuck out in the tent or building the mansion on the, the one side, but you have a, a better option to go forward. So it's been, I think it's been well received. We're excited. We're launching new products on a, on a frequent basis. And I think it gives us the ability to, to help a lot of the different people in the marketplace. Yeah, it's like a continuum. So, you know, yep. I'm really glad you brought that up because, you know, so I have this problem with what I do, right? So I do PR marketing and strategic communications for startups. And there's a pretty wide gap in between I'll get on the phone with you and tell you what you need and you're going to pay me a lot of money per month to do it. <laughs> similar. I mean, we're it's similar. We're not as expensive as lawyers, obviously, but, you know, like it, it's, it's comparable in terms of the engagement model. Mm. And the thing I'm trying to figure out, honestly is what level of automated DIY self-serve gets that conversation going? I mean, honestly, one of the reasons I do the podcast is to practice talking to people, potential, it could be potential clients, or they're just interesting people that are doing like what you're doing really fascinates me because I'm like, oh, your service business, you're providing products and services, but really you've got products at this continuum that where you're like feeding it's almost like you're building this funnel. It sounds silly, but you're giving people options on how to engage. Which yeah, and I would say you're building a relationship, right? I mean, yeah. one of the hardest things when you're getting into sales is they come into your office, you, you know, you talk with them, you walk through them and they say, man, you know, in typical sales model, which I hate, but you wait to the very end and then you spring it on them how much this is going to cost. So then you're like, but I convinced you how well you need my services. So now you're going to forget about the price because you know how well, and nobody ever needs to forget the price. And they're just wondering the whole time through the sales pitch. Yeah, you know, how much is this? How much is this, right? This sounds really expensive. I don't think I can afford this. Like, I can't walk out now. I'm already at the meeting. But, <laughs> they already gave me you know, a cup of coffee. I have to sit there and finish the coffee. <laughs> but I think it allows you to establish, it gives you options to one, if they do do the automation, it's a little bit free money. I mean, you do have an investment to do it up front. 
But once you, as long as you do a good system that helps them, you're going to have to do very little touch points. So it gives you an, an additional income source for the business. It helps out those people that can't afford your services now, establishing relationships. So now when they come and say, okay, I did a trademark today, I'll do it on my own because that's where I'm at in the, the startup phase. Now when I need to go do a patent, well, patents are a lot more, are a lot more complicated. I don't know yeah. if I want to do that on my own. I already had a good experience doing it or using their system before. I'm sure they do an awesome job. So kind of that, that funnel, I always like to call the hourglass because you really, you're establishing your relationships. So they're coming back in and they're not leaving. They're just going out the bottom of the funnel, but they're always, they're continuing to get, get initial service and then expand it back out. Yeah. It's kind of like a flywheel. I like to think of it as a flywheel. Like it just, you keep on moving the flywheel, but uh, so, so these DIY services, do, do you think when you build them, they make they make it better for your like normal service? Because it, it would seem to me, I mean, again, because I'm again, I'm fascinated by this because I'm trying to figure this out, too, because it's a tough mm. it, anytime you're in a services business where it's like high value, high content of thought, like, OK, someone has to do it. building systems and processes are really important. So did did this help you guys build better systems and processes for your main business? It it almost goes both ways because, you know, what some of the systems originally, the idea of doing DIY products, I'm like, you know, we built, I put a large focus on automating the things that we don't need to do, or we don't have attorneys to do so we can free up the time for where we need their expertise. In other words, they don't have to do everything. If we're doing something repetitive over and over and over, why don't we automate it so it frees up their time? So a lot of the systems originally started with, hey, we built a lot of systems to help the attorneys. We could probably scale this back or adjust it or pivot it and, and do it as a DIY product. So some of it started with, we're doing it on the law side for our own practice, and now let's do it so the DIY that other people can leverage that. And then it was interesting to your point, then we go and start to build it out for other people and we see where is it? Where do they have a hard time understanding things? Because if they're having a hard time understanding things, they're probably having a hard time when they're working with us. Where do they? Oh. Where are the catch-up points and everything else? And so we'll take what we're learning on the DIY side and apply it on the law side. We'll take what we're learning on the law firm side and apply it on the DIY side, and it ends up leveraging kind of both systems that so we can improve them and they and they get better over time together. Is there a good example of like a aha moment, like on either side, where you're like, oh, I didn't. If we didn't do the DIY or vice versa, we never would have known that. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think if there's a specific or, you know, if our, so kind of <laughs> is what I can think of because we're getting ready to launch one on the patent side. So right now we have NDAs, we have trademarks, we have a few other ones, but we haven't done anything on the patent side because that one has been more complicated. In other words, it takes a lot more, but I think that there's a way to do it. And I'm excited to launch it. We just haven't launched it yet. Um, but, you know, when we're going through and saying, how do we set this up on the, how do we walk them through all the information that they should really be putting in a patent application? And how do we train them on what words they shouldn't be using or how they shouldn't be to, or phrasing things? Then it was almost okay. If we need to train them there, well, we really, the tool that we needed there should be used by attorneys too, because attorneys need to check their documents so that they don't have those words. They're what we call patent swear words. In other words, don't put them in a patent application. You're right, right, right. They'll create an issue. Any anything that anything that says algorithm. <laughs> no, no algorithm. <laughs> I 
ironically, one of the worst words you can put into your patent application is invention because yeah. <laughs> it's a longer story. But you, or, or you use the word only. Only, you know, if you use the word only, then it narrows it. So it's only done this way. Now you don't have as broad as it. So there's right, a lot of right. I, I got like a list of like 60 of them that we could go through another time. <laughs> but the idea was, is, hey, if they're going to need this system, they need this tool to help them to make a better DIY product. We really, our attorneys should really be using this because they're doing it, you know, it's hard to check for all these words in an easy way. So we built, oh, a, yeah. we built a tool for the DIY side, but now we have the attorneys actually using it right now while we finish up the DIY side. So it's one of those where we're saying, hey, we need to do with this so that they're not using patents where words that is what a lot of times it'll be a provisional patent application will help somebody do a provisional. And then when you go to the non-provisional, the non-provisional, the full patent application ties right back into the original application. And if they have all these patent swear words in the original application that they drafted, now we have a problem with when we, even if we were to pick it up later on, we have those same issues with those words. And so that was kind of the whole genesis. And we found that when we we're doing it over on the DIY side, our attorneys needed the exact same tool to make their applications better. And it was one of those where it leveraged it for both sides. Cool. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's really neat. That's really cool. So what would be a bit of advice that you'd give the next generation of entrepreneur coming up? Buckle in? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Suck it up, buttercup. Here we go. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that the, the, the problem that people have is they everybody, once they have that idea that they get really excited about, and sometimes if you're an entrepreneur, you have five of those ideas a day and four and a half of them are really bad ideas and you have one that's half good. But, you know, the, the problem that you get with, a lot of the where you see the start of the small businesses, they've been glamorized with, and I like I love Shark Tank. I've watched every episode. My wife watches it with me. But you watch Shark Tank, and it feels like everybody is an overnight success. And then you yeah. go watch the movie, everybody's an overnight. And then I go watch the TED Talk, and everybody's an overnight success. Right. And really, every time, with almost no exceptions, it's ten years in the making, and it's an overnight success, ten years in the making. And so you have to realize that you know I'm not going to just go and start a drop. Contrary to the ads on YouTube. I don't go start a drop shipping company and five or five weeks later, I'm a millionaire. I don't have an idea and somebody's going to come pounding down my door and just tell me, oh, that's a great idea. Let me give you millions of dollars for it. That's not how it works. You, there is that or that time that you have to invest in order to build a business and to build a company to be as success, successful. And if you don't, if you, you have to almost, so I think, steal yourself or prepare yourself on the front end that this is going to be exciting. It's going to be fun. But it's not going to be just all easy and, and easy going. And there are going to be times where you wonder, I should have just stayed with my original job. It would have been so much easier. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot, of, a lot of blue collar work, right? A lot of blue collar, not fun, hard work. Yep. And even like, and it's like, oh, you hire employees and everybody, every entrepreneur I've ever known says, you know, there are days I just think about firing all my employees, going back to where it was just me and doing it on my own because I don't want to have to deal with them all. And so you have to be willing to, to be able to, I guess, steal yourself or be prepared that it is one of those suck it up, buttercup, buckle in. It's going to be hard, but enjoy the journey because there's a lot of fun with it. That's true. That's true. Well, Devin, thanks so much for your time, man. That's just so fascinating. I love the whole like services and then building products and how the products feed back to the services. And I think that's a great piece of advice that if you're a services business, get your processes and automations to help you internally do it and then figure out, Oh, well, could I offer this to other people? Because it's just going to make you think more about, 
how well you can service people. I, it's Absolutely. just, it's a great idea. Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Hey, it was an awesome time to be on here. I had a, I had a blast and thanks for having me. Thanks, Devin, for being on the show and the awesome interview. It's really cool that you're trying to combine some of the entrepreneur stuff and the legal stuff and building tools to help people. I'm always keen on improving the efficiency of things. So uh, as promised, here are some actionable insights that I learned from my interview with Devin. Devin's business strategy is to focus on his clients, who they are and what they need. He doesn't just offer one service. He seeks to meet his clients where they're at. In this way, he's building a relationship with potential clients even before they might be in the position to hire him. Now, this is actually a really good strategy. This is sort of the freemium quote-unquote model where you have tools to help people and resources. You, You are just a fountain of knowledge and information. And so they remember, oh, hey, you know, Devin was a cool guy. He gave me all these cool resources. I'll go look at him. This is a really good way for some SaaS-type startups or consultant firms. This is how you get remembered. So um, I try to do this even in my own practice. Protecting intellectual property is a critical step in a startup's phase. You can't do it too early when you don't yet know what you're protecting, but you also don't want to do wait too long when it might be too late. You know, Find out early when and what you need to do to protect your company. So this is always the tricky part, right? It's like chicken before the egg, egg before the chicken. When do I file? When do I don't file? When do I put to practice? I mean, it can be quite a mess. So I think that's why it's uh, really powerful that if you do have these sort of concerns, you do talk to a professional, right? I mean, that's what they're there for. And you really don't want to mess this up. Um, Speaking from experience, (laughs) Devin cautions entrepreneurs not to buy into the myths of overnight success. All successful businesses have years of blood and sweat behind them and in them. And this is 100% true, right? Every overnight success has been seven, eight years in the making. So I think this just goes to show and say and, you know, reinforce what I've always said and thought that you just have to enjoy the journey and just keep at it. You'll know when it's going to go and you'll know when to stop. So don't get frustrated if you're not an overnight success. Well, There you have it, the actionable insights that I learned from my guest, Devin. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list, by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur, and frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA, and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better.